0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 41 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we'll take a look at why South Africa's testing regime is changing to take account of recent learnings. We'll hear the voices of 30 Gauteng doctors who sing an unusual message of hope for South Africa. There's an analysis of why people in sunnier climates fight off COVID-19 better. The International Monetary Fund's number two tells us why the global lender of last resort is better positioned than ever to help countries like South Africa overcome the financial cost of fighting the pandemic. And we pop into the Education Minister's discussion with the media today on why schools didn't reopen as planned. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's new infections totaled 1,716. That's slightly down on Sunday's number and the fifth successive day at a similar level. That takes the country's total recorded COVID-19 cases to just over 34,350, of whom half are now formally described as having recovered. There were 22 new deaths reported today, down from Sunday's 40. Mortalities in South Africa total 705, that's exactly 2% of total recorded infections. South Africa's mortality rate is a third of the global average of 6%, with deaths worldwide now at 375,000 from 6.3 million reported cases. After slowing recently, the United States reported a spike on Sunday with more than 20,000 new cases in that country, and 638 deaths, both the highest in the world for the day. Brazil is a new hot spot with almost 16,500 new infections reported on Sunday. That takes the total there to over half a million now, and second in the world behind the United States is 1.8 million. Brazil's 480 deaths on Sunday takes its total to over 29,000. That's above Spain and France. The United States remains the hardest hit nation on earth with 106,000 deaths, roughly 8 out of 10 of those in people aged 65 or older. Next on the list is the UK with almost 38,500 mortalities and Italy at 33,500. An impromptu remote choir of 30 Gauteng general practitioners supported by Brian Schimmel, one of the country's top musical directors, have released a COVID-19 video song to send their patients and the rest of the country a message of hope. The project was put together by the recently established 150-strong Gauteng General Practitioners Collaboration Group. None of the doctors are professional artists and each clip in the video was filmed in isolation at the workplace of the doctors concerned. An interview with the Voices That Care instigator, Dr. Dan Israel, and collaborator, Dr. Sherry Fanaroff, is coming up later in this episode. The proposed reopening of South African schools has been postponed by a week, giving the laggards time to get fully prepared. At a media briefing today, Education Minister Angie Mochecha said personal protective equipment had not been delivered to all schools and reorganizing the curriculum by teachers had taken them longer than anticipated. Highlights of that session later in this episode. Panda, the Pandemics Data and Analysis Group, says the South African government's official advisory body, which is projecting 40,000 mortalities in the country, needs to make its model public. Panda coordinated Nick Hudson, says the 40,000 forecast made by the officially sanctioned South African Centre for Epidemiology and Modelling and Analysis is outlandish and at least four times higher than what the figure is likely to end up. South Africans were able to acquire their favourite tipples today for the first time in nine weeks and reacted by forming long queues outside bottle stores and other alcohol sellers. The South African liquor industry said the reopening went without major hitches. A statement from its Umbrella Bodding stating members of the alcohol industry were unanimous in their praise for the way retailers, restaurants, taverns and consumers rose to the challenge and demonstrated the safe and legal reopening of the sector. Dr. Nolotandu Nemwatsirani is the head of the Center for Clinical Excellence at Discovery. Nolu, we've seen the infections in South Africa rising very significantly in the last few weeks. Is this expected?
1: Yes, it is expected. Um, we are seeing Western Cape with the highest number of confirmed cases at this point. But in the early days, it was uh, communicated that We will be peaking maybe later in June, maybe later in July in areas like the Western Cape and later on in some of the other provinces. So we're expecting a surge in cases around this time. uh, But uh, right now, Western Cape is disproportionately uh, impacted by the number of COVID-19 cases.
0: Do we know why?
1: So, I mean, there have been quite a few theories around how the Western Cape is currently experiencing a much higher number of cases. I think it was initially thought that it could have been seeded cases where people who ported the cases came into the Western Cape to travel. And because of maybe some poor social distancing practices and maybe other reasons, then those people transmitted the infections to the rest of the community, and now we're starting to see community spread. And I think that is contributing now to the number of cases that we are seeing.
0: Does it mean that what we're seeing in the Western Cape is going to be replicated elsewhere in the country? Is that that just a matter of course?
1: We are expecting similar trends in other provinces, just that the Western Cape could have been the first province to be impacted. But I think it's really how we deal with what we're seeing in the Western Cape to actually prevent maybe devastating effects uh, elsewhere. So to try and manage and contain spread in other areas of the country. But the epidemic uh, from the word go, it was clear that we will not, it's almost like deferring it, but we can never almost eliminate it. Even though, I mean, there are some countries that have managed to limit the number of cases like New Zealand. uh, But in our case, we are expecting that we are going to see a surge even in other other provinces as well. It's just a matter of time.
0: How important is the testing? And we do see there's been a lot in the media about us taking a long time to get the tests back and being a bit on the back foot there.
1: Yeah, no, testing is critical at this point. At the start of, of the epidemic, we had our case definitions in terms of people who qualified for for testing. And there were lots of plans nationally around increasing testing capacity. I think at the time, the minister was talking about 30,000 tests per day that would deal with the current number of requests that we are getting. But you would have seen the latest results that came out in the last 24 hours. We all we tested about 17,000 specimens, so which is short of the 30, and we are aware that e- there are shortages in terms of the test kits, and I think it's not only unique to South Africa, there are some global shortages of the test kits talks to what our testing strategy looked like in the past few weeks and how we almost need to review that testing strategy and think differently around who we test and why we test them. There's been a lot of talk specifically from experts highlighting the fact that what worked a few weeks ago is definitely not going to be something that we can sustain because what is happening right now with the testing backlog is that in some areas, specifically if you look at the Western Cape where the numbers are quite high. People are waiting for about a week or two weeks to get their results. For an infection like COVID-19, where you need to be acting as quickly as possible, by the time you get the results, what are you meant to be doing with those results? If a person who needed to be isolated has been moving around, unaware that they are infected, and 14 days later, then they get their test results. So it means that you are actually unable to act on that test result in terms of isolating those who may be close contacts to that person. The other important piece that has been highlighted around testing is our clinical management of patients because when you test, you also want to know this person is COVID-19 positive and therefore how do you structure their treatment plan and act in terms of their clinical management. So the delays are really not uh, assisting uh, with any of those. So you're not curbing the infections because the results come when people have been, I mean, have been exposing others to potential infection, and also even for the clinical management of patients, there isn't much more that you can do because of the delays. So I think those are the two important pieces. And, and I mean, there's been quite, as some of the experts have been quite vocal around what has been driving some of the inefficiencies in testing. And also they were just highlighting the importance of getting results within 24 to 48 hours so that you can actually act on. What they have picked up, Alec, specifically and uh, maybe talking to some of the corporates is some of the wasteful testing that has been going on, some of the testing that has been observed where asymptomatic people have been testing, return tend to work, people are tested, and there's baseline testing of people who are well to just get their COVID-19 status. That is considered really a wasteful testing because the people who are sick and really need a diagnosis to be made will not have access now to testing because of the shortages. There's been real, almost like condemnation, (laughs) condemning the practice of requesting baseline testing for people who are asymptomatic and understanding also the limitations of the test itself if you do it uh, for people who are asymptomatic, that you may get a higher percentage of false negative results because we also understand that at a certain point in the intubation period, you may not have sufficient viral load for you to test positive, And therefore, some people may test negative and the false sense of security that uh, the test result has come back negative, but in fact, that person could still be infected. It's a whole lot of issues that need to be taken into account. When we move into a space where we may be seeing an increase in numbers not only in the Western Cape but in other provinces as well
0: mm, It's so interesting the the way you've unpacked it there effectively, then we've probably wasted a lot of money, given that the tests talking to your colleagues, they were telling me that the tests cost about eight hundred and fifty rand each. Then you've got thousands and thousands of these tests that have been done, which seem to be wasteful because what's the point, as you said earlier, if it takes ten days to find out if a person is positive by that stage they've probably infected too many people.
1: Yes, not definitely and I think if you remember also there was a government strategy that advocated for screening in communities so we had these field workers that were going out screening communities and I think that has been stopped and now because The laboratories are not coping with the actual number of samples that are being sent through. And some of those people are really not that sick. We have seen the Western Cape, for example, has come out with some very interesting guidelines. Now it's really about focusing on the people who are sick. And for the people who are not that sick, they can self-isolate for a period of 14 days clinical management of symptoms without really utilizing the test kits that are in such high demand but in short supply as well.
0: We're learning as we go along.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I Alec, like the reality of the situation is that for many other countries that have been through the same path that we are now are on, they've also had to they are testing strategies along the way. If you look at the UK, they were only testing people who are hospitalized, and I think that's the direction eventually that South Africa is going to be going to, where you're saying these are people who are sick and you need to know uh, how to manage them so the test result actually impacts the clinical management of that patient. Whereas you look at, I'm going to make an example of influenza. If you have got flu and you are in your house and you are not sick enough to qualify For hospitalization, right now, I mean, very few people actually have an influenza test. So supportive care will be provided, but it's also important then for those people who are symptomatic to make sure that they self-isolate, they prevent spread, and then when they're clinically well, they can then de-isolate according to to the guidelines. I think we are moving into that same space where we're saying you may not be able to test everyone. And I think with the overlapping symptoms with flu, remember our case definition says if you've got a fever you've got a cough you've got a sore throat you've got you know all these uh, symptoms you qualify for testing but not everyone would uh, then have a different cost in terms of the treatment plan and we know that a majority of people will have mild disease so it's about how you then prioritize if you've got a shortage of test kits who are you going to to prioritize they've actually classified patients into the low risk and high risk categories where high-risk member uh, patients will be those with underlying comorbid conditions because you're worried about those patients actually complicating and requiring intensive care. As the number of cases increases, we definitely have to to change strategy here and change costs to maximise the benefit of the test kits that we have at the moment.
0: It seems to have been an overriding issue where, as we learn more about COVID-19, we deal with it differently. If we think about some of the ideas that were propounded early on about some of the uh, the medication that could be used, which has now been uh, thrown aside, other medication, which does seem to be helpful and so on. So I guess this is a first-timer, and as a consequence, being a novel virus, we are learning.
1: Mm, no, we are learning. Even in our uh, early discussions around some of the therapies and some of the theories about BCG, remember, this virus has been with us for five months and i mean if you look at many other infections and other conditions that we've known about we've learned about them over a period of time and we have had the luxury to understand what works and doesn't work and here we are really changing strategies on the go because what works uh, yesterday, as more information and, and data is coming, is becoming available. We then have to adapt our policies in accordance with the literature. It's the right way to do it because at the end of the day, with some of the therapies, specifically when you've got a very sick patient and you don't have. Any uh, proven therapy that works, you will use whatever you've got at your disposal that shows some bit of promise until you can get to a point where there are well-structured clinical trials that show at least a level of efficacy. You also rely on small numbers in some instances to make some of those decisions. It's challenging times specifically for clinicians on the ground who are faced with these patients. Also from a policy decision-making point, I mean, you, you, whatever was appropriate yesterday may not be appropriate today. So you need to be very flexible in how you change the policies. But I think from a public point of view, the general public may not always understand how these policies have to rapidly and dynamically change based on situation as the pandemic unfolds and also as more clinical evidence becomes available. <laughs>
0: Dr. Sherry Fanaroff and Dr. Dan Israel join us now. This project, uh, Dan, I believe, was your brainchild.
2: Yeah, Alec. thanks. It was something that sat with me for a while at the beginning of COVID-19, and it's something that just I felt inspired to put together. Are you a singer? I'm an amateur singer. I used to be involved with a lot of musical projects growing up, and I put together a couple of shows, but as fundraisers and amateur events. But I'm not a professional.
0: It's quite a choir you've got together there. And clearly, you couldn't put everybody into one room. How did you record it? So it was the most interesting musical thing we've put together because in all the choral
2: work we have done before, the first step is putting the voices together in one room and seeing how they sound. And the uniqueness of this project was auditioning, so to speak, doctors in our group who wanted to be involved, who we had never met before over a cell phone and getting them together virtually and deciding with the help of the pros I've used, who would work together and who would blend nicely to make a great song. But we did it all on the phone and that's how we got
0: them together. Sherry, what motivated you to become involved in this project?
3: At the beginning of COVID-19, round about the end of March, quite a lot of the GPs in Joburg started talking to each other about medical things because COVID-19 is very new. You know, nobody had knowledge about it. And so we really started sharing medical ideas and medical knowledge and questions, and our group grew. You know, I joined in, I think, the end of February. There were probably about 25 GPs on a group that I think had been going for a couple of years And from then until now, it's grown to a group of, I think, 152 GPs, in mainly in Joburg and Greater Gauteng. On this group, we've had amazing camaraderie. We've had really lots of fun and jokes, but most of all, support. And when Dan threw his idea out there and said, I've got this crazy idea, who wants to sing? I think out of the group of 150, Dan will correct me, I think there were 30 GPs who agreed to sing. And that's why I said yes, mainly because of the support and the, the camaraderie of the group and because we really wanted to send a special message out to our patients, really just saying, your doctors are here for
2: you, we've got you.
0: start with the lyrics, Dan. Where did they come from?
2: Growing up, I heard this song, and this was another We Are The World anthem song that was actually written in 1991 during a wartime in when troops were being sent out in America encouraging them on one of the expeditions. I didn't know that growing up, but I'd heard the song and being involved in the choral things that I was growing up, I decided one day I want to make something of this. At that time, no one knew what that song was, and I didn't even know how to find the song. There was no YouTube, Google, or any way of tracking these things. When I came up with this idea and I started looking for what song we were going to do, I remember the song, and today it's easy. There's Shazam and Google, and I, I looked up this Voices That Care because I found the just the, the name of the song so fitting for the message that we wanted to put out during COVID-19. We found that the, the words just were so meaningful, and the melody was so beautiful. The song allowed for such participation of different doctors coming in at different parts in the song that it would really become an anthem for us as GPs during COVID-19.
0: How are you guys doing, Sherry?
3: Things
2: are tough, Alec. You know,
3: most GPs and specialists are actually finding in Johannesburg our practices are unusually quiet, which is interesting. A lot of patients are scared to come into the doctor. They're scared to go to hospitals because they're scared they're going to pick up COVID. In addition to that, we obviously have to take massive precautions in terms of keeping our rooms as sterile as possible, We've got to disinfect. We've got to be in PPE, masks, gloves, visals, things that at the beginning were actually really hard to get our hands on because there was a a shortage of them. So we're doing good. We're loving our collaboration group, which is Gauteng General Practitioners Collaboration. A lot of us generally don't speak to each other. GPs are really isolated. And this has been a way of coming together and doing this song really has brought us all closer together.
0: And Dan, from your side, uh, are you also
2: finding it tough? Yeah, so like at the beginning, there was an influx of anxiety into my practice, which there still continues to be. But as Sherry's just said, we're finding that people are reluctant to look after their normal medical conditions and they seem to be neglecting those in the fear of catching COVID, which sometimes is irrational and sometimes is... Thoughtful in terms of public precautions, but being the GP stuck in the middle, we have a tremendous responsibility and at the same time, a lot of difficulty in fulfilling it. So yeah, things are quite tough, but we keep our heads up. And it's car van der group, this group that she started that really helps the GPs to maintain this great spirit am-
0: amongst us. What kind of questions are you being asked?
3: Alec, well, you know, the anxiety, as Dan said, is massive from the beginning, and I think that that's because it's an unknown, and the media coverage of it is unlike anything I'm sure you've ever seen before. There's just, you know, people have described it as an infodemic, and that's what it is. And our patients are knowledgeable, they read widely, they listen to biz news, but they also listen to a whole lot of other things, and there's just so much information out there. As GPs, I think it's our responsibility to try and put out good, accurate information and to try and answer the, the myriad of questions. You know, we get questions from can my domestic worker come to work in a taxi to is it safe for my kids to go to school? And that's the, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm generally dealing with on a daily basis, as is Dan and as are the rest of our colleagues.
0: And right now, that, the, the second of those questions is really the big one on many people's minds. Is it safe? For our kids to go to school, how do you answer that that question? Cherry?
3: Alec, it's a tough one. You know in general, doctors feel, having looked at the literature around the world and having looked at countries that have gone through this before us and having studied the transmission amongst children, the transmission from children to their parents, I really believe that it is safe to go to school if schools are following. Protocols in terms of social distancing, hand hygiene and mask wearing. Those are really the three tenets that the schools have to, have to follow. The South African Pediatric Association put out a statement on the weekend reiterating that they're absolutely in favor of children going back to school. It can be safely done and I really believe it should be the way to go.
0: Dan, from your side, where do you get your information from? So Alec, there's a big responsibility, I believe, on every doctor at
2: the moment to actually invest the time that maybe fortuitously we've been given to research because, as Sherry said, with the influx of information, and a lot of which is unreliable, it's a responsibility of medical practitioners to look for information that's evidence-based and that comes from studies, and from reliable sources. So I spend a lot of time at night reading online, not, not news articles, so to speak, but studies and medical sites. And, and I try and dovetail that with what we're seeing in the media. I do believe, on Sherry's point, that it's important for every individual, as we go into this lockdown 3 time, to try and assess his or her own personal situation. There are individuals who are at higher risk who need to take extra precautions and there are individuals who are at lower risk, perhaps like our kids at the school, who the evidence has shown are not harbourers of this virus, who we just need to put standard precautions in for. That's the basis of a lot of the advice I'm giving my patients currently.
0: And Terry, I see you've been doing quite a bit of Broadcasting of your own. I saw there was a podcast, a webinar rather, that you were on recently. I also get, as one of your patients, I get the, I get your WhatsApps, your regular WhatsApps. Where do you get all your information from?
3: So it's also from research from evidence-based sites, Alec. And, you know, I started sending out WhatsApps to my patients right at the beginning, mainly trying to answer questions that were being asked of me over and over again. So I started doing it as an attempt to not repeat myself over and over. So I kind of just answered the general questions in one, you know, every few days and sent that out. But I soon realized that my messages were getting spread quite a lot, lot further, even without my intention. So I was kind of comfortable with putting out information that I believed was evidence based and up to date. The webinar that you're referring to was one done by the Jewish report, and the reason that I did that is another of my patients, Howard Saxton, runs that, and he asked me to speak on that webinar. So that's what I did.
0: And what do you, both of you, perhaps as a as a, parting com- a parting comment, what can you suggest to your patients that will protect them as much as is possible against this horrible virus? Sherry?
3: As I mentioned for going to school, the three main tenets of it are really looking after oneself in terms of really washing your hands, making sure that your hygiene is good. Social distancing, unfortunately, goes against human nature, but it's really important. This is a droplet spread virus, so if you are more than a meter and a half away from the next person, you are unlikely to get it. And mask-wearing in public also, it's not something that one wants to do, but unfortunately it has been proven that that is the the major way of stopping the spread from asymptomatic people. It's individual, so people really should be consulting with their doctors in terms of am I at risk, am I safe to go out, and if they are, to do it in a safe way.
0: And yours, Dan?
2: Sherry said that so eloquently, and its I think those things are so well covered. I'd like to give my message more as a general message to the community in that this world has seen pandemics and epidemics before. And as upside down as the world is at the moment, we will get through this. It's difficult for everybody, for children at school, for healthcare professionals, and for just the man on the street, the the professionals, the Brian Schimmels and Joel Sackers and Jonathan Behrens who put this song together that we started off discussing um, even in their industries, they see how this COVID-19 has really taken the, the industry down on its knees. But the important, and that's in entertainment. But the important thing to remember here is that even if you're in those industries, that if you adhere to these public health measures that Sherry just spoke about, we will pass through this time. And whether it's through long-term this virus petering out, or whether it's hopefully through a vaccination that will come earlier than we expected to or whatever the means are that this world will overcome this and the important thing is to keep a level head and to keep yourself engaged in responsible practices in terms of your general health and your engagements in the world in the meantime so that the world continues to function and that you continue to function in your normal life and that you remain healthy and then you shouldn't get the virus and this will pass.
4: been looking at the effect that weather factors and temperatures have on the coronavirus pandemic and results have indicated that it has its peak like other flu viruses during the colder months. The COVID-19 virus appear to survive longer when it's cold and dry. This has raised the fear that COVID-19 may increase in the winter in the cooler parts of the southern hemisphere like South Africa and rebound in the northern parts of the world after their summer. Bloomberg editor in Australia, Jason Gale, spoke to one of America's most respected health experts, Harvey Kleinberg, about the effect of weather on COVID-19, and he found that the answer appeared to do more with sunlight and vitamin D levels than heat.
5: Many respiratory viruses, just by experience, have a seasonality component. When the weather is drier, cooler, more people indoors, they do a better job of transmitting from one person to another. So the uh, incidence of infection tends to go up in the winter months uh, when you're far from the equator. MERS has experienced very little seasonality. It tends to be in warm climates. The SARS original outbreak occurred in areas near the equator, like Singapore and Hong Kong, as well as in temperate climates, uh, such as Toronto and North America. And again, when people are indoors, they're probably touching the same surfaces even more regularly and more often. So the net of this is we can't be sure what's going to happen. We have seen outbreaks and even increases in areas like Singapore, where they're on the equator virtually. But it is, I think, reasonable to expect that there's going to be some seasonal fluctuation to this coronavirus, like many respiratory viruses if the summer months create conditions where the virus can continue to spread at a very low rate, in effect to stay below the radar, but to seed many more geographic areas, even than are affected today, that's not a good recipe, because that could mean in the fall and winter months, we're going to see escalations in many different places happening at the same time. So, we have to maintain our vigilance, certainly through the summer, with this new and dangerous virus. With luck, we'll be in a much stronger position by the fall than we were this spring to have adequate testing as a part of the response. And without testing, without a unified structure, without the capacity to do the contact tracing and follow-up, uh, there really was no way that this virus could be Absolutely defeated.
6: It's possible that the seasonal impact goes beyond just heat and humidity though. Here in Australia, just over 7,000 COVID-19 cases and 100 deaths have been reported so far. Some countries in the Northern Hemisphere have reported many times that number in a single day. That striking difference might be explained at least partially by vitamin D, the best source of which comes from the sun's ultraviolet radiation a growing body of circumstantial evidence links low levels of vitamin D in patients' blood with worse outcomes from COVID-19. The pandemic emerged and started spreading in the Northern Hemisphere at the end of winter, when people's vitamin D levels are typically around their lowest for the year. Last month, scientists at Northwestern University in Boston found COVID patients with severe vitamin D deficiency were twice as likely to experience major complications they think it has to do with a sluggish immune response that's more likely to result in a hyperinflammatory condition, sometimes referred to as a cytokine storm. A 2017 meta-analysis of 25 randomized control trials showed that vitamin D supplementation protected against acute respiratory tract infections. Harvey says it deserves further investigation.
5: Uh, it's one of a number where there's some reason from previous studies with other infections, from laboratory experience, to think there could be some role that that particular agent could play in reducing the frequency of disease or the severity of disease or both. If it did turn out that supplementation with vitamin D could interrupt the the severity or the occurrence of this disease, it would be tremendously valuable because that's a very safe agent, widely available, It could be uh, very useful, but like all of these others, it needs to be investigated and evaluated in a double-blind, randomised, controlled fashion.
6: Last week, the Lancet Medical Journal reported that researchers in London plan to begin a study to investigate how diet and lifestyle factors might influence transmission of the coronavirus, as well as the severity of COVID-19 symptoms, speed of recovery, and any long-term effects. They aim to recruit at least 12,000 people and have some preliminary results by the summer. As one of the researchers commented, at best, vitamin D deficiency will only be one of many factors involved in determining the outcome of COVID-19, but at least it's a problem that could be corrected relatively safely and cheaply.
4: The government has approached the International Monetary Fund and other institutions for help to fund the response to the coronavirus pandemic. The IMF will provide the bulk of funding, with South Africa entitled to withdraw roughly 80 billion rand of its special drawing rights quote in the form of a rapid financing instrument. In the meantime, the United States has appointed a top treasury official in the number two position at the IMF. He is Jeffrey Okamoto, who was appointed as the fund's first deputy managing director. The appointment would give President Donald Trump considerable sway over the IMF. His lack of control over the World Health Organization, whom he accused of pandering to China during the pandemic, was one of the reasons why he formally cut ties with the WHO. Mr. Okamoto spoke to Bloomberg's Tom Keane and said the IMF enters the crisis better resourced, than any other prior crisis.
7: What we need now is is somebody who's gonna be trying to bring the world together on these critical issues. We didn't anticipate a pandemic uh, before I started in this role. We're here now, and I think since I've arrived, we've been moving quickly to try and uh, build relationships across institutions in the multilateral framework and also bilaterally with our key uh, countries and partners. That's what's gonna be effective in uh, not only uh, responding to the health side of this, but also on the economics, which for some countries is just as important or even more important. This is a huge challenge. One thing that we've had to deal with, as, as I think we all have in this crisis, is move with incredible speed. So we were talking a bit about markets and, and, uh, and market reactions, but, but really some of the optimism in the market is, is, is reflected in the fact that you know institutions like ours have moved with incredible speed uh, and at an incredible scale. Right. That's unprecedented in our history.
5: Can you recommend to the managing director that this needs to be a kinder, kinder and gentler IMF?
7: I think the conversation Kristalina uh, and I have been having with countries is this is not your father's or even your grandfather's IMF. Uh, we are approaching the world in the, in the context of this pandemic in a new way. A lot of that you can see in how we are provisioning our facilities for Uh, for emergency finance at this point in time, which is, you know, we're we're telling countries very, you know, we're very frank, spend what you have to at this point, but please keep the receipts. And we're going to be holding countries accountable on the back end for this, but we're not second guessing some of the decisions they have to make in terms of spending on critical uh, health priorities and social safety nets. You know, I think uh, my role in this and I think our institution's role in this is not to involve too much in the geopolitics. What we're looking at this from is from an economic perspective. We're entering into this crisis better resourced than we have uh, in any prior crisis. And so we're, we have a trillion dollars in, in financial firepower that you know, we are ready and able to deploy that's being deployed in real time today. Right now, given the, the, even the, the, some of the more pessimistic projections that we have, we think we have the sufficient resources that mm-hmm. we need to uh, carry out our, our role in this. Obviously, we are encouraged by the good amount of international cooperation that's come behind some of our recent requests for resources, for example, fundraising campaigns uh, to help some of our poorest countries, which uh, have gone MET. So that's, that's a good thing, and that bodes well for any future needs we may have. You know, I'll, I'll let the President and, uh, and, uh, and the Treasury Secretary speak on where they think the dollars should be at any given point in time. I think what's important here is that uh, the Fed is doing all that it can to support financial markets, both through monetary policy and through some of its financing operations that are, that are forthcoming jointly with the Treasury Department. This is uh, obviously, uh, we, we enter into this world, as you said, with flexible exchange rates that allows flexible exchange rates to be part of the buffers uh, that uh, help uh, you know, countries weather this. For some countries, though, this is the first time they're having to use uh, some of these tools. And so that's where our advice uh, paired with, our as you put it, these mm-hmm. icons of the IMF, historic expertise and, uh, and uh, a wealth of knowledge gets deployed on the ground mm-hmm. to help countries in real time.
4: Many countries are grappling with the issue of whether it is safe to reopen schools and how to safely bring children back to the classroom. The Wall Street Journal has investigated what effect bringing children back to the classroom had in countries that have reopened schools and they found no resulting increases in coronavirus infection rates this was in Denmark Austria Norway Finland Singapore Australia and New Zealand which have not had outbreaks in schools or daycare centers it has to be said however that most of these countries have sophisticated monitoring systems in place in South Africa the decision that schools were supposed to reopen in phases from today sending back year 7 and 12 pupils was Reversed by the Minister of Basic Education Angie Mochecha over the weekend when she decided that the opening of schools should be postponed until next Monday, the 8th of June. She told the news conference that her decision was based on visits to schools, consultations with trade unions, headmasters and provincial education ministers and reports that she had received. They indicated that the Western Cape and Harteng were ready to open. The North-West Province, Eastern and Northern Cape were regarded to be at medium readiness. And Limpopo, Mpumalanga and Kwazulu-Natal was at low readiness level with a high risk of infection. The minister therefore decided that it was risky to reopen schools today and said they needed another week to mop up the schools that were not ready for reopening.
8: It became clear that the sector was at different levels of readiness. And as you recall that we were allowed to open schools only if we meet the health requirements to the full. So those reports confirmed that in some instances we were 80% in other provinces, in other provinces were 96%, but we were not all at the same level. And in the main, it was this reason that the CM determined that the sector requires more time to mop up its state of readiness for schools reopening. And as I will speak to that about what were still outstanding matters. But I can speak to some of them off the cuff because on Thursday I visited a number of schools in Gauteng on Friday I went to the pre-state. I went to the first school in Olive and Holt and the principal was wearing techies with her staff and they were doing everything possible to ready themselves for Monday. And the principal whispered to me and said, You know, Minister, we I hear all the time. We leave the school very late. But let me tell you, I will not be ready to teach on Monday. Because the things we had to do are things that ourselves had not anticipated that we would have to do. Because the most difficult part was reorganizing the curriculum, getting teachers who are not teaching grade 12, to And just those decisions around the curriculum took the schools a long, long time to come to conclusion. But in terms of your protective clothing, on Thursday they were only delivering the, PP, the, the protective equipment by the province for learners. So which means learners would not have been informed already by Friday. So it's a fact. So, I think it answers other questions that I anticipate you will ask. That. It's a fact that I can confirm that by the time I went to certain schools, there were schools that were not read. From Olive and Hold Bosch, I went to, 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 to Midland, Secondary. Again, the principal, the vice-principals were having tape measures. Because was one thing that we had not thought through properly a uh, 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 DG. We had a schedule on the arrival of teachers and didn't make a schedule on the arrival of other support staff. And you would have expected principals themselves running schools would have closed the gap. So when I went to Ivory Park, it was the principal and the vice-principal was busy doing measuring of distances, whereas they had spent a whole week dealing with curriculum issues, whereas if we had really planned properly, the support staff wa- was supposed to have arrived with the principal and do all the other administrative work. Even the principal of Ivory Park said to me, Minister, by Monday I will receive kids, which means I'm going to be inducting learners and teachers at the same time. We are sure we will be finished by Sunday, but we have not met all the requirements and the steps that were have put for us. I proceeded to go to Kempton Park. And they were they were beyond what we had asked. They had inducted teach, uh, parents, not only teachers. They had inducted parents. They had orientated their learners. They were ready ready to move. Everything was in place. But the, even there, the principal said to me, "When my teachers came here, the anxiety in their faces tells me that on Monday we will not be able to teach these learners." We have to really calm them down because it took me time to settle teachers. So I'm just giving an example of our experience to say there were schools which are very ready. There were schools that were not ready. On Friday I went to the free state. They were beyond ready. When I one school which I went to, I found them already inducting and orientating their learners. Because they themselves also are saying when the teachers arrived, they were very anxious and they felt that if they were to teach on Monday, they must induct their learners. They had called parents, showed them all the health protocols to reassure them about the safety, because as you remember we all said, uh, everybody is anxious and it's very important for us to keep on reassuring each other. So as a result of those reports, As I say, we took a decision to say, let's use this week to mop up. But it's a decision we took very late on Saturday when we had our final report. And there were different views. To say, why don't we let the schools that are ready to proceed, because it will kill the momentum if we say they must not proceed. And focus on the schools that were not ready, because some will be ready at different times. I'm giving an example of Ivory Park. The principal said, at least by Tuesday, I'll be ready to teach. The principal of Olive and Hope said, I'll be ready by Wednesday. So, which means we're all unready. But the decision was that there were other key factors around safety for the coronavirus, which have not been satisfied like water. Therefore, it will be risky to have a blanket opening of schools. And it took us long on Saturday to arrive at that. So on Sunday, I had to spend the whole day speaking to private schools, because they also needed reassurance, we had to agree, I had to speak to, so it was a series of people that we had to consult with, and I'm still explaining why I had to call the media off, because I just could not jump other steps, especially with people who were affected, because principals needed to know but yesterday, what do they do? Do they phone parents? Do they send uh, uh, messages to say parents must not bring children? And that's what to long. So I want to say again, I'm very, very sorry. But based on these reports, it became quite clear that the sector was at different levels of readiness. In the main, it was for this reason that CEM, your Council of Education Ministers, determined that the sector requires just more time to mop out the state of readiness for, for school reopening, in order to comply with the health and safety standards of COVID-19. So the Saturday CM Resolve, that teachers whose schools have already received the personal protective equipment will be expected to report at work on the 1st of June. So we're expecting teachers to come today, and I'm glad the first school I went to, they have a full complement of teachers, they had 25 teachers in their books, they had 25 teachers. But even then it was qualified that if they have received, because the report was saying as late as Saturday there are schools which had not received their protective equipment from their provinces. And when they arrive, those teachers have to prioritize the preparation of their work to deal with the new normal brought about by the coronavirus. And that new normal meant different and new tasks for teachers, because even here the principal was telling that she had, she had five classes, you said five, two classes for Matri, We have five, now you are at eight. So which means teachers were not teaching grade 12, now have to teach grade 12, and therefore you have to work out in terms of your staffing deployment, how do you deploy your teachers. And that was not an easy one because I think as schools, we have this tendency of saying your most experienced or most skills go to grade 12, the others. So we've had to reorganize ourselves. So as provinces, we also agree that we must finalize all outstanding deliveries of your PPEs to schools and the outstanding provision of water and sanitation. Because by Sunday, when we met, Randolta gave us a report, they had not finished, they had, I think they'll speak for themselves, there were schools that they had not delivered tankers to, they're only arriving today. And teachers and support staff should be inducted and orientated for the new environment brought by COVID-19. Which is the very same teachers who have to be armed with all the necessary information, who in return have to support and induct learners. So some of them, obviously, will not have been inducted by Friday or Saturday. Therefore, we've agreed that schools which have not inducted people, they should do the induction. And again, as I say, when I was in the free state, it was a health department. I was a doctor and nurses which were teaching our staff about the virus and all sorts of things and working out the protocols of linkages between themselves. And we also agreed that provinces should finalize the training of screeners. Because again, screeners were appointed, they had not arrived at schools, but other provinces had done it, I'm told the MEC tells me that she had trained all her screeners, she had trained all her school nutrition uh, 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 members, and also volunteers that had come to assist us. Because what is going to happen in the first weeks, especially in the primary schools, we have to help force our children to understand the new environment. Uh, There are going to be different assembly points, they're not going to be able to interact with their friends. They're going to have different breaks. They're going to leave the school at different times. So it's a new environment because they must not be crowded at the same place. So all those logistics have to be sorted out. So come next week, everybody knows where the assembly point is. You see, when I went to the free state, there were even color coding glasses to say the yellow. Only assemble there, they don't go anywhere else. The green only assemble there. The yellow, so that even inside the school they are not able to interact and the whole area has been color coded in terms of the directions. But we also had to deal with processes related to independent schools. So they had made their own submissions to say we are small, some of them are small. So, the reason for us to phase in is to allow us opportunity to start, it's not because we don't want all the learners here, it's to allow us to really create a COVID-19 compliant environment. And they say we have, how many inspectors we have. So, we had to deal with those. We also had to deal with schools of learners with special needs, because even those are different, they are therapeutic, There are different spaces that we had to work through. So we did discuss, then we met after our decision with uh, MECs, then we met with teacher unions and the national school body associations to share with them our decisions to use this week to mop up and ensure that all the outstanding matters are attended to and agreed with them that this week is going to be a mopping period Schools that have completed all the necessary steps should use this week for induction and orientation. So let me not repeat that. So what is happening is that provinces are now putting their shoulder to the wheel to ensure that all prerequisites not yet fulfilled will be delivered within the week 1 of June. And together with our partners agreed to another meeting on Thursday to continue to monitor and evaluate all outstanding compliance imperatives. For instance, we also had situations where, because we announced late our decision on Sunday, parents had started driving their kids to school. So when parents phoned me to say, I'm in the Eastern Cape, my child is in a boarding school, are you saying I must come back? So we had to deal with all the matters that really were a fallout because of the late decision. So we communicated, unfortunately quite late, that parents should not bring grade 7 and learners 7 and 12 to schools, but teachers who have received their PPEs are expected to report for work and carry out their responsibilities as spelled out. And more importantly, the, the sector agreed that the effective teaching and learning should resume on the 8th of June 2020.
0: This has been episode 41 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.